child is born in a natural way to an earthly mother, so God births in us spiritual life. And so it's the picture that he uses. And the Bible is quite interesting because it uses that image in, in many different ways. The language is slightly different, but the, the thought is always the same when you read the Scripture. For, so, for example, in John's Gospel, it, John says we become new people. But he's essentially talking about new birth. So if you read, for example, John 1, 12, it says, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. It says, no, we, he uses the image, we become new people, children. Or 1 Peter 23, it says the same thing. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of what is imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Or what about Ephesians 2, the first seven verses? I'm just going to paraphrase it. In Ephesians, Paul uses the image of being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. But essentially he's saying, you are born again. Same, different language, same idea. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of us becoming a new creation. All right? Uh, if, uh, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. These are all pictures that the Scripture uses to enlarge on this um, idea of us being born again, that we have been spiritually regenerated, that what was dead has become alive. And as a result of that new birth... And, and uh, there's a whole new thing that begins to happen in our lives. We, we, for the first time, have revelation of who God is. And we can begin to see and understand, and there's some perception. And now suddenly when you're born again and you read the Bible, suddenly things start to make sense. Isn't that amazing? When you, before you're saved and you read the Scripture, it's like, what is this? Like it's, you can't make sense of it. And yet when you were born again, the Holy Spirit in you suddenly brings understanding and revelation. You start, I understand now. That's what it means. And so we have this kind of, Revelation that we've never had before. We have faith in God, which we've never had quite in this, in this way before. Um, and the power of sin is broken in our lives. Oh, and that's, that's to be celebrated. The power of sin is broken once and for all. And so, if it wasn't for this ama amazing act of God's initiative to break into our lives and to give us this great gift of salvation, we would be the same as the rest of all of humanity in a downward spiral towards death and destruction and uh, Paul describes that very graphically in Romans chapter 1. You read the first chapter of Romans. Or in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of Ephesians chapter 2. Which he says, the rest of humanity are all children of wrath. And he uses this phrase. He says, amongst whom we all once lived. In other words, before we were saved, we once lived like this. In the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Right? Very graphic, very strong language, saying that's how we once were. We, were. we once were children of wrath, but now God has done something in us, and we are alive, and we are regenerated, and we see the world completely differently, and we see Him completely differently. And there's this glorious, glorious grace that uh, God pours out upon us. And so we looked a couple of weeks ago at common grace that all of humanity enjoys, and uh, I just try to describe that as best as I could. And so if you've missed it, go and get on the podcast and, and catch up. But this is what he's talking about here. Saving grace is not a gift that is given to everybody. It's given to some. And when it's given to you, Paul says, what happens in your life distinguishes you from the rest of humanity. And you are different because you are born again. 
And God intervenes and He, and he, he steps into our lives and He initiates salvation and our whole destiny is transformed. Uh, that is delightful. The way your life was heading is completely and radically changed because God intervenes and suddenly everything changes. Everything changes. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at the fact that every good gift comes to us from above. The perfect gift is the gift of salvation. It's the word of truth, and it also comes to us from above. And so James uses this image that it, God brings it forth in us, and we are a new creation. And that's exactly what Jesus meant in John 3, 3, where he said, Truly I say unto you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Unless this process has happened, unless God has intervened, unless God has brought light and revelation to you, you never see the kingdom of God. So the first thing I want to say is that there's a life that is beyond what is natural. It's supernatural, and it comes to us by the gift of God and by His revelation in our lives. And the first thing I want to say is this. We cannot save ourselves. First point, very simple. We cannot save ourselves. And that's what religious people try and do. Religious people try and say, if I behave in a certain way, if I live a moral and upright life, God is going to be pleased and that's going to please Him. And um, then I kind of carry favor with Him. But you can't save yourself. Uh, and if we just reflect upon the language that Jesus uses, when he said, which I've just quoted, truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. If you just reflect on the language that Jesus uses, it becomes obvious. Why do I say that? Because how many of you had anything to do with your natural birth? Did you initiate your natural birth? You were just there when it happened. Isn't that true? You had nothing to do with being born naturally into this world. And so that's what Jesus is saying when he's using that language. He's saying, actually, by definition, you have nothing to do with being born again. It's initiated by God into your life. And Nicodemus, remember the famous story of, of Nicodemus in um, John 3? He was the religious kind of guy, the Pharisee, um, and, and, and he, he was battling with this to understand this. And he was trying to, so he says to Jesus, you know, he says, how can a man be born again when he's old? How can that happen? Must he go once again into his womb, his mother's womb, a second time? So he understands the language of Jesus, and he asks Jesus, you're saying, I must go back inside my mother's womb to be born again? And Jesus' answer says, no, truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. And the New Testament makes this idea clear over and over and over again, uh, and makes it clear that we've got nothing to do with being spiritually born. And if you look at John 1.12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So it's clear the initiation comes from God. It comes from Him. Everything starts with Jesus. Everything starts with God the Father. Everything is initiated by Him. And this is a sticking point for many. Uh, many people don't want to accept what I'm saying to you this morning. And, uh, because people want to think that there's something good about them that God sees and God chooses. <laughs> and the Bible says there's nothing good about any of us. Nothing good about any of us. Uh, not even one has ever sought after God. It's all God's initiative breaking into people's lives. 
And so what's clear is that we come into the kingdom, we are born into the kingdom by an act of God's sovereign will in our lives. He sovereignly moves and he says, I choose you, Jason, and he brings revelation. And he says, I choose you, Marlene, and he brings revelation. It's a gift. It's incredible. And that's what Jesus said, John six forty four. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. It's all initiated by God. And people who reject that and who don't like what I'm saying, it, the real root of it is, is self-righteousness. The real root is actually I can, I can do something to please God. I can think a certain way or I can behave a certain way and, and I've got something to do with it. Well, actually, the Scripture says, no, we've got nothing to do with it. It's His sheer grace poured out in our lives. It's His sheer delight to just say, Gary, I choose you. <laughs> now, when I, when I preach, I, I have this thing. When someone gets saved, I say, thank you, God. I'm glad that you've chosen that person. Now, please choose some more. <laughs> I think we get, we get too hung up on who's chosen. You know what I'm saying? The fact that you are saved means that you've been chosen. And that's delightful. Don't worry about who's chosen and who's not chosen. You just get on and share the gospel. You preach the good news to everyone that you can. And if God has chosen them, they will be saved. That's it. And so we have a delight to say, God, thank you for salvation. And you choose some more to be saved. All right? That's the first point. We can't save ourselves. Secondly... Paul also says that we are born again by hearing the Word of God. So James makes it clear that it's God, God's initiative out of his own will. He, he initiates this thing. But Romans ten seventeen, Paul says a very interesting thing. He says this, faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. So there is this partnership that we enjoy as preachers of the gospel and livers of the gospel that we preach and God, by sovereign will, chooses and saves. And uh, that's clear also in, um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the foolishness of what we preach, to save some that believe. It's amazing. So there's this partnership. There's this partnership between preaching the word and trusting the Holy Spirit, to sovereignly woo people and draw people and bring revelation so they can be saved. And just as we're part of a natural world and we're born into a natural world by a creative process, it's the same, that every person that's born again who enjoys saving grace in their lives has heard someone preach to them. And I was just, I didn't, didn't understand this before, but as I was preparing this, this, this week, I realized it was true even of Paul. It was true even of Paul. And we, we, um, we uh, like to, to, to um, preach around that amazing experience that he had on the road to Damascus. But what I, I realized this week is now reading Acts 6, the end of Acts 6 and, and, and the whole of Acts chapter 7, there's that amazing story of Stephen. And Stephen gets before all the Sanhedrin and he tells them of the history of Israel and what God has done and he preaches the gospel to them. And Saul was there. Because we read in... Uh, Acts 7, this astonishing verse at the end, it says, Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. They rejected what he said. They got really angry. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And uh, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And with that said, he fell asleep. Isn't that beautiful? He fell asleep. But my point is this, Saul heard the gospel before he had the revelation of Christ on the road to Damascus. Someone had preached to him. Stephen preached to him, and he killed him, along with all the others. But he had heard the gospel. And when, he's, when the revelation comes to him on the road to, to, to Damascus, the first thing he says, he says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus replies, says, I am Jesus, and you're, perse- you're persecuting my church. And immediately, Paul has this incredible revelation of what God has done in his life. It is amazing. Someone preached to Paul, Stephen, who was martyred. Everyone who's saved hears the gospel preached to them. And Paul even uh, admits that in a sense. He, he says that strongly in Romans ten fourteen. He says this, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So there's this amazing partnership that we enjoy with the Holy Spirit. We preach the good news. We witness. We do whatever we can. And God sovereignly brings light and revelation to people. And he chooses them and saves them. So there's this partnership. It's absolutely delightful. And uh, The best picture I think I can uh, use to describe it is conception. Since there's so many of you having babies. There's a sperm, there's a seed, there's an egg. The egg can't, if it's successful, there's conception, but the egg won't remain um, unfertilized without the sperm, without the seed, and the seed cannot produce anything by itself. And so when we use that picture, it's a very good picture of preaching and the Word of God, because basically it describes the new birth. The seed of the new birth is the Word, and the egg is the heart. So the word has to come, has to come, and it takes root in the heart, which brings life and generation to it. So Jesus uses that um, story of the good grounds, remember, in the parable of the sower, uh, Matthew 13, but essentially he's saying the same thing. He's saying, it says, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, other birds came and devoured them, and he has this whole explanation of what happens when the sower sows seed. And the various versions of that story in the Gospels. So if you read in in the the same parable in Luke 8, Jesus makes the connection very clear because he speaks directly and says the good soil is the soil of the heart. And he says, verse 15, As for that in the good soil, they are those who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and a good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Beautiful. That's what Jesus says. He says that's the the good heart is the good soil. And uh, the seed of the word, the sperm, it's coming and it takes root in a good heart and it conceives and it brings life and something starts to happen. And with patience, fruit begins to come. Isn't that amazing? And that's the story of all of our lives, really, in our walk with Jesus. And um, lastly, just to illustrate it further, in Romans 10, Paul says this in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe where? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth you confess and you are saved. And there's this perfect description of the new birth. 
the expense of God's saving grace in our lives, the result of the word coming and taking root in our hearts and being received in our hearts. I just want to look thirdly, uh, fourthly, and this is my last point then, what happens in the heart? How does it work? Is there just a randomness that certain people are saved and God is sort of vindictive in some way and he chooses some and he doesn't choose others? Is, is that how it works? Is God kind of fickle or how does it work? How do we understand that? Well, Paul makes it clear that just like some eggs are not fertilized, there's some hearts that don't receive the gospel. Because that's what Paul says in Romans 10, 16. He says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so to put it simply, some people who hear the gospel, the seed of the, of the soil, does, it doesn't take root and they're not saved. And this has been an incredibly liberating thing for me as a preacher to come to this realization in my own life. Because for too long, I felt responsible for everybody. And you see people making poor decisions with your life, and you somehow feel guilty for it. You say, God, don't they get it? And you, you become all anxious, and you live this kind of life of anxiety and wondering if people are going to, uh, what they're going to do, and are they going to make wise decisions. And I just came to this point of realizing, actually, it's not my problem. My, my responsibility is to faithfully preach the gospel to you every week. The responsibility of the word coming into the heart has got nothing to do with me. That's a job for the Holy Spirit. I can't save anybody. I cannot, but Jesus can. I cannot change anybody, but the Holy Spirit can. And so there's this partnership that I have as a preacher and whoever else preaches the word, that we preach simply the gospel and then trust for God to do the work in the hearts of people. Or else it becomes, it becomes manipulation. It becomes, oh no, I can't live like that. You understand what I'm trying to say? For the preacher to try and get the people to do stuff. No, no, no. It's got to be the Holy Spirit in us, which is regenerating us and helping us to see everything differently that is going to enable us to live our lives differently at all. Amen. That's good news. That should set you free. <laughs> okay, so what happens in the heart then? Well, I want to three little comments about the heart. First thing I want to say is that our hearts have no power of themselves to receive life. The word has to come externally. Something has to happen. Our heart has no power of itself to bring life and regenerate anything. Secondly, we know that the Bible says our hearts are dark and wicked. And uh, I, I tried to um, say last week that the light of God's revelation has to shine into what is dark. And so that's why Paul says this thing of the light of God's grace needs to shine into the darkness of our hearts. The gospel has to come and make a dark place bright. And Paul uses this image in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. Remember, that's, that's a reference back to the creation. Where Jesus, uh, God said, Let there be light. And so there's, this, there's this, this word that comes and breaks open the darkness and creation happens. He uses that same phrase. He says, Just as God said, Let there be light in the beginning. So God has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So he says that same voice, that same one who spoke at creation and said, let there be light. He's the one who speaks into our hearts and says, let there be light. And we begin to see. It's all God's initiative. Beautiful. So that's the second thing. The third thing I want to say is our hearts are not neutral in this process either. Uh, remember what I said last week? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
And the light of the world came into the world. But Jesus also said the men loved the darkness more than they loved the light because their hearts were evil. So our hearts are not neutral in this process. And only God can bring revelation and lightness into a dark place of our hearts. Only He can do that. So something has to happen in the heart. That's what I'm trying to say to you. And I saw the scripture this week, which is so beautiful, Acts 16, 14. It says exactly what happens in this process. It's talking of, uh, of uh, Lydia. Remember, Lydia is the, the lady who sold a purple cloth. And this is what Luke, writing the book of Acts, he says, uh, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. There it is. That's what happens in the heart. God opens the heart. God enables us to see. And he starts to shine in his, his light into our hearts and says, I choose you. And suddenly revelation starts to come and we begin to see. Beautiful. So what about the word then? What about what I'm doing now? This thing of preaching the word. What, 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 um, what influence does that have? Because, you know, we, like to, we can think all sorts of things. For example, does the word have to be a certain quality? Does the seed have to be a certain quality? In other words, does the preacher have to be really good for something to happen? Does the atmosphere have to be right? You know, must the band be playing nicely, lights dim, with every heart bowed and every eye closed? Would you like to receive Jesus? It doesn't have to be like that. Um, do you have to have the right sort of frame of mind? Do you have to be in the right frame of mind to hear the word? Or, or do you have to have the right sort of upbringing? You know, be brought up in a Christian home for the word to be effective. In other words, do these things have influence in causing our hearts to respond? That's what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I was thinking about it this week, and it really, it, it is a profound mystery. I mean, it is a mystery how anyone gets saved. So I'm not trying to tick all the boxes. I, 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 I'm saying I, absolutely it's a mystery that anyone gets saved at all. And we delight in the work of the Holy Spirit. But I do want to say is that God can work through those things. He can. He can work through all those things. Good preaching, um, the right kind of atmosphere. He can work through all that stuff. But most of the time, He works despite that stuff. Sometimes when the preaching is really bad, people get saved. You know, that's what the evangelistic gift is. If you, if, you, if you see an evangelist and when he preaches, sometimes the message is incredibly simple. But there's a gift upon the man or the woman that when they preach, people get saved. It's just God's grace. So I want to bring us back to the place that we started right at the beginning and say, James's words summarize it. Of his own will, he brought us forth. It all starts and ends. Anyone being born again is a sovereign act of God. Whether you got saved through good preaching, indifferent preaching, bad preaching, whether you got saved, however you got saved, it's just God's sovereign act of grace upon your life and upon my life. And we rejoice in that. That's really what I'm trying to say. And Paul... He emphasizes that again in Ephesians 1, in uh, verse 8, when he says this, In him we have obtained our inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Isn't that amazing? He just says it again. He says it in a different way. So what matters most is that the truth that we hear, that it's heard and it's believed, and whenever we are witnessing or preaching to others that we are praying this in our hearts and our minds, uh, Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and spirit, joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that's what we've got to pray. Every time we witness, every time we're just living our lives, God, I can do what I can do, but your word, your spirit, please bring life. Please pierce the heart. Please cut open what is hard so people can see and bring revelation to them. So the last thing I want to look at then this morning is um, what does James mean when he says we're the first fruits of creation? What does he mean by that? Because in the Old Testament, you know that there was a sacrificial system in the Old Testament and um, to, to uh, deal with sin, they would bring sacrifices, the, 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 the first of an animal, first of a produce of, of some description, and they would bring it to the priests and it would be sacrificed as a first fruit, right? And God, I'm giving you this. And, and there was a whole sacrificial system around that. And sometimes in the New Testament, the, the, the term um, first fruit can re- refer to a first convert, for example. If you read uh, Romans 16, 5, Paul talks about, I forget the person's name, but says they're the first convert in Asia, the first fruit of the gospel. But here, James is not using it in a chronological sense, in terms of it being first, like that. It's got to do with quality. It's got to do with glory. It's got to do with honor. Um, He's saying that those who are born again are the first in the kingdom of receiving honor and glory. It's the highest kind of, uh, um, not compliment, but um, what's the word? Accolade. It's the highest accolade. You are the first fruits of all creation if you are born again. That's what he's saying. It's incredible. In other words, the glory of everything that we see, the glory of nature, the glory of the universe, the glory of the galaxies, the sun, the moon, the stars, he's not referring to that. He's not referring in a general way to all of humanity either because we know that although people are are, uh, made in the image of God and are capable of great good and doing wonderful things, there's nothing more ugly than a life that ends up under the power of sin. And so Paul's not saying in a general sense that humanity is, is the first fruits of God's creation. He's making a very uh, specific point, James. He's saying there's something that surpasses all the beauty and majesty of all of God's creation, the galaxies, the sun, the moon, the stars. He's saying there's something infinitely more wonderful than the African bush or the Amazon jungle or the Andes, or the Himalayas, or whatever your, your picture is of amazing beauty in nature, whatever it is, he's saying there's something infinitely more wonderful than that. He's saying there's something higher and more glorious than anything that we have seen in all of the created universe. And he's saying there's something that surpasses even the greatest accomplishments of, of men. Sending people to the moon, uh, whatever. And he says it's the simple thing of saving grace. And so what I'm trying to say to you is a beautiful sunset cannot be born again. (laughs) A bird, a fly, a tree, a whale cannot be born again. Only men, women, boys and girls can be born again. This is an incredible, incredible thing. 
And so James, just building on what he said before, he's saying there's something that's more glorious than the wonder of common grace that we all enjoy. And that's all the majesty of the things I've tried to describe right now that's poured out upon all people. He's saying there's something more awesome than the greatest piece of music, than the most finely honed work of art in the Louvre in Paris right now. There's something that is absolutely more wonderful and great, great, more, more profound than any of that. And he is saying... It's that which breaks the downward spiral of sin in our lives. It's that gift that breaks the progression of temptation to death. It's that which displaces evil and breaks the power of sin in our life. He's saying it's that thing that gives us dignity in the world. It's that which wipes away our tears, wipes away our sin. It is that is the greatest gift in all of the universe. That is the hope of glory. It is saving grace. Man, that is good news. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old is gone and the new has come. The gospel sets us free in so many ways, doesn't it? You don't have to live in a certain place. You don't have to have a certain gift. You don't have to be name-dropping with the right kind of people. The gospel sets you free to be yourself and to live in obscurity if that's what God's called you to do and faithfully just preach his gospel to everyone that you meet. And it's only possible because of Jesus. And what's interesting as I was reading this week, you know, Jesus is never described as the first fruit of creation. He's always described as the firstborn of creation. Colossians 1.15, here's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation creation. Romans 8.29 calls him the firstborn amongst many brothers of all those that will be saved. He's the firstborn. Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from amongst the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Beautiful. And so what James is saying is we are first fruits. We are the the, 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 the glorious ones. We have received the highest accolade of all of, of what has been created because we are born again. Because we've had this revelation that has come into our hearts. And we are the, in that sense, he says, we are the first fruits. Because that, the God who's created us has become our redeemer. He came and dwelt as a, as a man amongst us. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And in Revelation... 21.5, Jesus says this amazing thing over his church. He says, Behold, I make all things new. Hey? Does that delight you? God says, I make all things new. Jesus says, I make all things new. And you, if you are in me, you are a new creation. Whatever you were, you are a new creation because of the work of my Spirit in you. And so this world, everything we see, all this natural world is going to pass away. And Jesus says to us, he will never pass away because he's eternal. And because we are in him, we are not going to pass away either. That's what it means to live eternally because we are in Christ. We're not going to pass away like everything else. When the, the, the scripture says that the, at the end of time, the world is going to be rolled up like a blanket and God's going to just deal with the whole universe. It will, will, will come to an end, but we will not pass away because we are in Christ. We are in him who is eternal. We are the glorious ones, the first fruit of all creation, those who are born again. And all of that is possible 
because out of his own will, he opened our hearts, he shone his light into our hearts, he brought revelation into our hearts, he chose us, and because of that, that seed in our hearts took life, thought was conceived, began to bear fruit, and now we enjoy this amazing, amazing life of Christ and walk by the Spirit, all because of God's initiative and kindness and grace to us. That is good news. That's the hope of the world. I've said this repeatedly in the last couple of months. Christ in you and me is the hope of glory. It's the hope of the universe. It's the hope of the world. It's the gospel of Jesus. Amen.